All right. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Uh, I'm going to sort of take you down a little uh, journey down memory lane, if you will. Um, and the reason for it is because I saw some comments in some of my recent videos where people are like, you know, how come you're not talking about what's going on in the world right now? You know, the new world order is like right on our doorstep and the mark of the beast and vaccines and all that kind of stuff. In fact, somebody actually just said in the chat room the same thing. They said, yay, Rob is finally talking about something that's important for today's events. <laughs> um, <clears throat> with all due respect, I've been talking about this stuff for over a decade. <laughs> um, and, and that's sort of the, the way I responded to some of the comments that I saw on YouTube. Is like, what am I going to say except I told you so? And I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I'm, I'm saying I've been talking about this for a decade. And... Uh, a lot of people also wondering, you know, why am I talking about seed? You know, why am I still even focused on seed? Well, I have to believe that uh, God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun. And I know in no uncertain terms that he called me to do that, to do this project um, way back in 2009. And actually, um, there's a project that I was working on. Let me see if I can put this up here. <clears throat> In 2009, it was called the uh, Protean Field. And, uh, in fact, you can go to theproteanfield.com if you wanted to check it out. This was back in 2009 now. Uh, Protean, P-R-O, well, it's right on the screen, T-E-A-N. So it's the Protean, theproteanfield.com. That's a movie script that I had written with my friend Dallas, who was the other guy pictured here with me, <clears throat> back in 2009. And at that time, we were... He, he was the founder of Kingdom Power Studios, and his motto was taking Christian filmmaking to the next level because we were both kind of sick of what we were seeing in the so-called Christian film market, and we're like, you know, we've got to put something out that the world would actually want to see if our goal is to reach the world. And so we're trying to take you know, uh, world events and, and package it all up into... Um, stories that would be culturally relevant, but that would illustrate kingdom principles. And art that I had written back in 2009 had dealt with, oddly enough, mind control, government-sponsored mind control using cell phone towers, cell towers. I mean, the the idea came in my head because uh, I had noticed a lot of new cell phone towers popping up all around me. Uh, you know, there had there were some that had been there since I moved here in 2003 in, in the Dallas area, but right around 2008 or so, I started noticing more and more popping up. And there's one time I was sitting, I was literally at a red light underneath a cell tower. Like there's a tower right off to the side where I was parked at the red light, and I was talking to somebody, and I'm losing uh, cell phone reception. Now I get it. Not all cell towers are for you know. I have Sprint, right? So you know, some are Verizon or some AT&T or what have you. So, but and and there was like two or three cell towers that I could see besides the one that was next to me. I'm like, what? So I started thinking way back then that cell phone towers were were serving a pro purpose other than just for our cell phones. And came to realize that uh, some of the frequencies that they use are the same frequencies that our brain operates on. And so I'm like, wait a minute. And, and I recalled uh, remembering some things from Desert Storm, actually, going back to the 90s even, where I saw Iraqi troops laying down their weapons in front of a drone that some of the early experiments with mind control uh, via technology may have started even 
back then, perhaps even further back than that. So that prompted me to write a story about government-sponsored mind control using cell phone or cell tower technology and virtual reality, and people plugging into virtual reality and, and disconnecting from the world by playing all these virtual reality games and stuff like that, and how they're going to use these new up-and-coming games that were out uh, as the vehicle through which they would beam whatever they wanted to uh, into people's minds. So <clears throat> that was back in 2009. And uh, we produced the trailer for it uh, with, like, no money at all. We had, it was just Dallas and I and some other friends got together and we just made this trailer. And, uh, you know, I did some limited special effects with it and stuff like that. And we got it out and we're shopping that around. Um, but the more I was doing research for that script and uh, the stuff surrounding it, I, I started to think less in terms of movies and more in terms of television because... Look, movies, you got 90 to 120 minutes, pretty much max, to tell whatever it is you're going to say. And that's just not enough time for what I wanted to say. There's so much more I wanted to talk about. So I started shifting my mind towards uh, television because you can stretch a story out over multiple seasons, you know, 100 episodes or whatever if you want to. And I've had decades worth of research that I had compiled and was trying to put into various movie scripts and stuff like that and then came up with the idea of Seed as a way of taking all those scripts and a whole lot of other research that I was doing uh, that I hadn't read scripts for and putting it all into one thing that could literally reach the masses. I mean, here we're doing YouTube, you know, right now, maybe a few hundred people listening live. It'll probably get a few thousand views. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, you know, I got a think uh, 190,000 subscribers or something like that, but I don't think everybody's even getting notified that my videos are coming out because I've been uh, shadow banned. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, we do conferences, we write books, we do DVDs, you know, we reach a few thousand people, that's great, but we're not reaching the masses. Meanwhile, the devil's out there pumping out <laughs> one TV show after another, one movie after another, planting seeds in our heads, uh, indoctrinating us on a regular basis. And, I wanted to compete with that, and uh, my wife, Sheila, she began praying that Yahoo would make a way for me to be able to take these scripts, take the ideas, take the research that I've been doing, and to turn it into um, this TV series, and she'd been praying that for years, and got real intentional about it back in 2009 when we were working on uh, the Protean Field, and the early development of Seed was in the summer of 2009, um, and then by December of 2009, uh, well, in between that time, I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, it's time. It's time to, to start doing all that stuff. And now I had a full-time job, both of us. We were working at a ministry, East-West Ministries. Uh, it was a great job, getting paid well, had full benefits, traveling the world, doing mission work. I mean, it was the dream job. Um, but it wasn't my dream. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, you want that dream? And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> because <laughs> it hurt too much the last time I tried it. And the Holy Spirit was like, well, that's because you did it your way. What if we did it my way? And I knew what that meant as a result of doing uh, over six years of mission work where going into the field having no clue what I'm going to do, uh, having all my camera equipment but having no idea what the story is, and just praying like, all right, Father, here I am. I've got the equipment. I'm your camera guy. Show me what to do, boss. You know, And uh, he would. He would. He would write the script. He would direct it. And I was just the camera guy. And having over six years of that uh, under my belt, I understood what what he was saying when he said, what if we did it my way? So um, an opportunity came up in December of 2009 
uh, for me to go to the desert of uh, Arizona. And the reason I went there was because uh, I had produced a trailer for Seed that was a little animated trailer because uh, I didn't have the money or the equipment to do what I wanted to do live. Uh, and I had seen something on Google Earth that caught my attention two hours north of Tucson, Arizona. And so uh, I'd written it in the script that my character uh, goes from that location two hours north of Tucson down to Tombstone uh, to find his dad. And that's about as far as I had developed the script at that point, at least that part of it. And uh, so I go to this Christmas party. I was back when I was doing Christmas and uh, met this other writer there. And he's out of the blue. He says, you know, w- one of my favorite movies of all time is Tombstone. I'm like, that's crazy, dude. Like, I had just written something in my script last night about Tombstone. He's like, oh, that's cool. So, uh, you know, we had a good talk about that, and he shared my views in in terms of, you know, Christian filmmaking and stuff like that. Um, So then I go to work. I I go back to work, and I get an email from Delta Airlines saying, hey, listen, you've been traveling the world. you got a lot of sky miles. You better use them or you're going to lose them if you don't use them, you know, or at least book a flight before the end of uh, 2009. So I looked at that. I thought, all right, father, are you, are you, are you paying me to go location scouting? And, uh, I called Sheila. I said, you know, I I think God wants me to go to Arizona and actually scout out those locations that I'd written about in the script. She's like, yeah, go for it. So I booked a flight. I ended up spending five days alone in the desert with God, two hours north of Tucson that were very much like an Abraham Moses type of experience where just crazy, amazing things happened out there. And I came home and, you know, my creative writing pace is if I'm just making stuff up, you know, uh, for fiction or whatever, uh, is about three to five pages, maybe a day, maybe a little more. I, I came home from that trip and wrote 17 pages and outlined 72 episodes like in a half a day. It was it was like, you know, I often say it was like he plugged a USB cable in the back of my head, sort of like the Matrix and just downloaded the whole thing. Uh, and it was like, OK. And so I came back from that trip and told my employer I really feel like I'm being called out and um, said goodbye. They were gracious to give me 90 days to sort of work my way out uh, of of the ministry. And um, on April 1st, 2010, stepped out in faith to do what I've been doing ever since, what I'm doing now, research and stuff like that. Of course, we went from a good-paying job with full benefits and everything to nothing, zero, not a penny, nothing but ideas scribbled on napkins and a few partially completed scripts. Um, and so we we truly lived a life uh, of faith uh, for all of 2010 and going into 11. Well, actually, I would, I would say going into even 2012, several years. Um, <clears throat> but after I left the ministry in April of 2010, uh, I got a video production office, which, frankly, God didn't tell me to do that. That was my idea. It was like, okay, I'm going to, uh, maybe I'll do wedding videos or something, you know, whatever I have to do to pay the bills while I'm doing this. He didn't call me to do that. He called me to do a TV series. Uh, but that was my human wisdom, um, which we didn't end up making a dime. <laughs> the entire, I, I rented a space for over a year and it didn't make one one dime in that place. The only thing we did there was host church uh, for a Sunday church service. And then for our, our group, when we started getting into Torah, we started having Shabbat uh, services there. That's the only thing we did there. Um, but I did end up producing a, um, a presentation to, to try to distill a lot of the stuff that was in my head and the purpose and the reason for Seed into a video presentation. And uh, last year, in preparation for this year, this is my 10th anniversary 
of leaving the ministry uh, to do what I've been doing ever since. And so last year I had the idea of sort of creating uh, uh, an anthology, like just going back to all of the radio interviews that I've done, you know, both me interviewing people as well as other people interviewing me, conferences that I did, you know, going all the way back to 2010. And of course, last year, there's all kinds of people coming out against me saying, Seed's Kabbalah and Seed is this and 33 Dad, he's a Freemason and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you guys are a bunch of morons. I've been I've been telling everybody exactly what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, why the E's are backwards here, because and that this video explains that. Um, this was a multi-part series. I, I divided it up into several parts here, but it was one presentation. That's the one I did in my video production studio back in 2010. And I don't remember which one it was. Uh, it might have been maybe this one or this one. That uh, after I did it, after I posted this video... And that was on my other YouTube channel. Uh, Captain Mang was my original YouTube channel. Um, I the uh, was it um, Randy Domain had written a book uh, on the Nephilim, and he was talking in some of the Facebook groups about his book. And whatever it was he was saying, I was like, "Ooh, that that kind of fits what I had just talked about in my presentation." So, one of these videos, I forget which one it is, but it's the one where I'm talking about. Uh, Mount Hermon and how and I related it to the first Rocky movie and what I believe Yeshua was doing on on Mount Hermon uh, during the Mount of Transfiguration and prior to that when he said who do men say that I am that was in Caesarea Philippi and so I posted that video in that uh, Facebook group and this guy named Doug Riggs saw it and thought it was like really cool and so he sent it off in an email to like Tom Horn, L.A. Marzulli, Steve Quayle, like all these guys that were frankly like my heroes. I mean, I had all their books and DVDs, you know, on my shelf and a lot of their work is what I was using for my own research, you know, going through their stuff. And uh, just to be frank, <laughs> this, this uh, uh, one day uh, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, in my underwear, <laughs> in my here at my home computer, you know, uh, I just kind of woken up and I was just still in my underwear and I was just checking email or doing whatever anyway the phone rings and it's Tom Horn like and I'm totally freaking out I mean I was like major geek mode at that point right you know trying to be cool and everything like it's I'm going, oh, oh, Tom Horn Tom Horn telling me you know I was like so excited and Sheila comes in and she's like who are you talking to I'm like I'm talking to Tom Horn I'm talking you know, while he's talking to me. But, of course, when I was on the phone with him, I'm like, oh, yes, sir, uh-huh, yeah, you know, trying, <laughs> trying to be cool and everything. Uh, but I was totally geeking out. And uh, anyway, we, we kind of created a little bit of a friendship. Uh, he really enjoyed the video. It was, he was impressed by it and wanted to know some more about my research and whatnot. Um, and that led to him inviting Sheila and I to come to a conference in Ohio. And at that conference, this was, uh, this would be... 2010 still, I think it was October 2010, uh, uh, and Russ Dizdar was going to be there, uh, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, uh, Tom Horn, and some other people that I didn't know at the time, and so, uh, of course, we're flat broke, we have no money, <laughs> we have nothing, but I felt like, you know what, honey, we got to go to this, we just have to, so we drove from, from Dallas all the way up to Ohio to attend that conference and make some, you know, n new acquaintances and friendships uh, happen. And, and, of course, got to meet Tom Horn, too. And, in fact, there's a picture of us at, at dinner with them. I don't know if you can see that on the thumbnail there. Uh, and I had given Tom Horn a uh, scroll. It was a it was a uh, cardboard tube that I made to look like an ancient scroll. 
in the in the the caps came off. You could take the caps off, so it was hollow on the inside. And I had signed the first episode of script, the the first seed episode of script, and and stuck it in there. So it was a signed copy of the a very early draft of Seed. So who knows? It might be worth something someday. Uh, and I put it in there, put the cap on it, and I handed it to him as a as a thank you, just for you know his friendship and for everything, all of his research and things that inspired me and whatnot. So um, that's us right there, uh, having dinner with them after that conference. And so this is uh, shortly after that when we got back from the conference. Uh, I think it was after that, I believe. Uh, that uh, they interviewed me. Tom Horn interviewed me on his radio show. That was 10-28-2010. Um, 2010. And um, that led to having kind of regular conversations with some of these people. Got to hang out with Russ Dizdar at his house, and you know all that stuff was really cool. And when I got back, I got introduced to some other people. And uh, Jim Wilhelmson, uh, you'll see, I interviewed him in December of 2010, became friends with him and we were having like a, I think it was a Tuesday night we were having sort of a, a a prayer warrior session with you know guys like LA Marzulli you know other researchers that were out there we're all gathering together to have like a conference call and just pray for each other You're like hey what are you guys up to what are you doing you know how can I pray for you you know what what issues are you guys dealing with and what have you and so that was that was really awesome um, and Tom Horn somewhere in there at that time introduced me to a guy named David Hitt who was a physicist who turns out lives about 30 minutes away from me. So I contacted David Hitt at, at Tom's insistence, like, you, you need to talk to this guy. So I went and talked with him, uh, had some amazing lunch conversations with this guy. Uh, if you get a chance to have lunch with a physicist, do it, because you have some pretty cool conversations. Um, and it turned out Tom Horn and David Hitt were getting together to uh, create this big super conference. It was called the Future Congress conference um, of emerging threats and challenges or something like that. I forget what the full title of it was, but um, that was going to be held in uh, July of 2011. And, you know, at this point, I'm I'm a nobody just geeking out, hanging out with all these cool people that had gone before me and done so much research and everything that I admired. And somewhere along the line, uh, Tom and David said, hey, would you like to speak at the Future Congress? I'm like, you kidding? Yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, it turned out they gave me three hour and a half long sessions to speak there. Uh, so I was like floored by that because I mean they were, they had I forget all the people there. They had like a dozen speakers there, and these were all you know in my mind these were all bigwig people. And here I was, I got you know I'm a nobody, and I got an hour and a half, three hour and a half sessions to speak. Um, so I quickly put together a presentation, two present, three presentations. That the first uh, one was mythology and the coming great deception, and the second was the Mount Hermon Roswell connection. And the third was why we need to be culturally relevant using media, uh, which that the third talk was basically a, a redo of, of these videos here that you see that, that I had broken up into multi parts, uh, all put into one presentation. Now, the mythology and the Roswell ones, um, all these conferences that I had, anything that I had done before the Future Congress was just with friends and family, you know, maybe a dozen people in the audience, you know, just to have an audience to do the presentation so I can make a DVD. And uh, initially, we, we just had them. Let me uh, switch to my full camera here. We just had uh, like little sleeves. The DVDs were in, in these sleeves. They weren't even in, in you know, regular DVD packaging or anything like that. And it, again, we had no money. So I'm, I'm literally taking DVD ROMs and burning them one offs on my computer and putting them in the sleeves. And we ended up somewhere we got a used. Uh, 
shrink wrap kit. <laughs> so we've got the plastic laid out and, and we've got, we got a, an assembly line in our living room. Well, I'm like burning a disc, putting it in the thing. Sheila's taking it, put it in the plastic, getting a hairdryer, shrink wrapping it and, you know, sending them off in one-offs and made like maybe a hundred of them or so to go, to take with us to have as product to sell at the uh, future Congress. And when we got there, our, our table was just this little booth tucked away like on the second floor that nobody knew. It was kind of like behind a, a, a support wall. So like there's like a little support thing and we were behind, like nobody knew we were there. I'm like, man, you know, nobody knows we're here. But I've got to make some money here because we're broke, you know. Um, and so uh, Doug Woodward had, uh, who I just met at the at that conference, had a table like right outside the main, the, the main auditorium. Uh, he had a perfect, you know, lot of traffic and everything, and he was only using half of his table. So I introduced myself to him. I said, hey, brother, you know, I, I've got stuff, but nobody knows I where I am or, you know, they don't even know who I am. They don't know where we are. Uh, would you mind if I, is anybody using this other half of the table? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, sure, no problem. He cleared a little more space out and gave us the opportunity to, to put our stuff there. And that's what, you know, a big thank you to Doug Woodward for giving us that break and a huge thank you to Tom Horn and David Hitt for giving me the opportunity to uh, give the presentations that I gave because that's what launched, really launched our entire ministry. That That's what put me on the public speaking circuit um, and things really, really took off from there. So um, when I was doing these videos last year, uh, you know, I was doing them in chronological order. Let me put that back up on the screen here. I was <clears throat> doing these in chronological order, you know, interviews that I did with people on my radio show, uh, interviews that you know, where other people were interviewing me, stuff like that. I did several shows with uh, Derek Gilbert. He, in fact, he was the first uh, radio show that ever introduced me to the to public on, on radio uh, was A View from the Bunker with Derek Gilbert. Um, and he interviewed me a few times. And I was on L.A.'s show, and I had Dante Fortson on my show. I met Doug Hamp, got him on my show. And then um, uh, started just meeting all kinds of other researchers, getting on their shows and stuff like that. So uh, I... I uploaded all these last year, and I ended with this one right here. Angels, demons, Nephilim, time travel, UFOs, Nazis, and uh, and more on Opposing the Matrix. That was Dave Rufino and uh, Jim Wilhelm's show. And in that episode, I was saying, hey, guys, you know, I'm getting ready to do this conference in Branson. Pray for me. You know, and they were very supportive of what we we're doing and, and the research that I'd done and, and seed and all of that. So they're like, yeah, you know, you know, best of luck to you next. You know, this is going to be a big thing for you. And um, so that's the, that's where I ended uploading this stuff because then I got I went to that um, contact in the desert conference and that sent me off into all these other videos, which I ended up uploading after that. And then kind of forgot about what I was doing here. Now, of course, come full circle to here we are, like I started this broadcast by talking about New World Order knocking on our doorstep, you know, uh, vaccines, Mark of the Beast, all that stuff. And I thought, you know what, this is a good time for me to pick up where I left off and uploading these videos. And um, when I looked at the video from the conference uh, that I did in Branson there at the Future Congress, uh, the quality was very bad. And uh, not the video of me, but the, the the video of the PowerPoint and the graphics and everything was really bad. So I had to take the time to uh, basically uh, re-edit all that with, with better graphics using the original PowerPoint presentation uh, and doing it in HD because originally it was in SD, so it was uh, uh, 720 by 480. So now it's at 1020 by uh, 720 by 780, something like that, whatever it is, 720. 
1080 by 720. Yeah, that's what it is. So um, that's what we're going to watch tonight. This is my very first presentation, and it will set the stage for the uh, future uploads that I'm going to be doing. Um, for more information about Mark of the Beast and my take on that and vaccines and stuff like that, uh, you might also want to check out the questfortruth.net. This was the series that I did with uh, Doug Hamp. And uh, we just went through a whole bunch of stuff talking about all that stuff as well. So, again, been talking about this for a decade, and it really all started with my lecture, Mythology and the Coming Great Deception. So let me get that ready for you here. And we will go ahead and play that for you now. The purpose of this presentation is to examine mythology and the gods of the ancient world from a biblical perspective. All images, video, and audio clips contained in this video are presented for critical examination and educational purposes only. You guys enjoying future Congress so far? Yeah. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yes. Unfortunately, we can't go to every single teaching. As speakers, we want to go to them, too. <laughs> There's some going on right now. I want to go see, as a matter of fact. So I appreciate you all coming to this one. Uh, and the, of the few that I was able to see, actually, I'm pretty jazzed about because they actually set the stage perfectly for some of the things I'm going to be talking about today. So uh, I bet you didn't study uh, and didn't know you needed to, but I'm going to give you a quick little quiz here. It's an easy one. What do you think these three movies have in common? Okay, mythology, that was easy because of the subject matter that we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah that was an easy one. A little deeper, though. What do you think these three movies have in common? Yes, sir. Magic? Not, not so much. Well, they're definitely doing that. Yes. Definitely that as well. Yes, sir. Yep. Well, yeah, blockbuster films for sure. Unfortunately, it is mythology. It is blockbuster. It is all those things that were mentioned, but specifically. These three movies talk about the Son of God saves the world. Son of Poseidon, Son of Zeus, Son of Odin. The problem is it's a wrong Son of God and a wrong God. This stuff is blockbuster films, that, that's, and there's more and more of it. There's a lot of movies coming out. Hyperion's coming out. There's a whole bunch of movies currently out, have been out, and are coming out talking about this stuff. How many of you have been through public school or have kids in public school? Did everybody have to read the Odyssey, the Iliad, the Greek mythology? Did anybody read the Bible? Hmm. Interesting. What does the Bible have to say about these characters? Well, it says, first commandment, right? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. I, I think I always just kind of read past that. I, mean, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't give a whole lot of consideration. But if you really think about it, who, who are these other gods and why is God so concerned about them? Now, I don't think God's worried about him at all, personally. But I think he's worried for our sake. And specifically in Scripture for the Jews. If you look at, the, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but if you look at the Bible from a mythological worldview, which sounds kind of odd, but if you do, you realize the entire, especially the Old Testament, is God against the gods. Constantly God's fighting this war to get his people back, his beloved, 
back to him because they're out, as it says, whoring after other husbands, other gods, right? Does everybody, you know, the title is Mythology and the Coming Great Deception. Does everybody know, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows, but I assume everybody here knows what the great deception is, or at least the reference, what it is. Anybody not familiar with the phrase, the coming great deception? The scriptures talk about there's going to be a deception in the last days. How many of you think we're coming pretty close to the last days? <laughs> there's going to be a coming great deception to be so great that even the elect could be deceived by, right? I submit to you that, w- and especially if you listen to Mr. Griffin last night and some of the other speakers, we're already well into the deception. And a lot of the church is already deceived yes. about a great many things. But I submit that the beginning of the great deception goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, where the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. Essentially, you see the devil making a couple of promises, which are very interesting if you really think about them. He's talking about the promise of immortality. They already were. Death didn't come until after that, right? He's talking about illumination. Your eyes shall be open. You have greater understanding. Well, how much more illumination and understanding do you need than walking with God? Uh, Hey, God, how did that happen? Well, let me tell you, Adam. Right? Lie. Becoming like gods. I think that is the big one right there. You, too, could be God. Hmm. Why just serve God, right? When you could be God. That's the big lie, I think. There's a, a guy by the name of King Wells who wrote a book called Ancient Myths in the Bible. It's a, a very short book, easy read, big print. Uh, but he says some pretty profound things in this book. And one of the things he says there, uh, he, he says, I believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, and therefore we have to believe that much of what we call myth cannot be fiction or a lie. Many of the themes that exist in ancient mythology exist in the scriptures. And he's absolutely right. I mean, think about it. Paul and Barnabas are preaching there in what, Acts 14. And they thought Barnabas was Zeus, and they thought Paul was Hermes or Mercury, the messenger of the gods. I, it's another one of those things, you just kind of read past it. But, but you got to put, he suggests that we should look at, King Wells suggests that we should view the Bible from a mythological worldview, which sounds kind of odd at first, because we're all taught to look at everything from a biblical worldview, right? But, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. Of course we should look at things from a biblical worldview. But the idea of looking at the Bible from a mythological worldview was kind of mind-bending for me because I thought, man, he's absolutely right. Because if you look at the scriptures, Old and New Testament, I don't even like saying Old and New Testament, by the way, because words mean things. We say Old Testament, oh yeah, that old thing, we don't need that. We got the new, right? I I think it's full testament, complete testament, first half, second half. (laughs) But if we're looking through the scriptures, man, man, you see the context in which the Bible showed up. When the books of the Bible were written, they were written when people very much believed in the Sumerian gods and the Babylonian gods and the Egyptian gods and the Greek gods. To them, it wasn't mythology. To them, it was a religion as real to them as our religion is to us, the belief in, in Yahweh that we have, or Yahuwah. They just called him Zeus and Odin and all these other guys. What did uh, Yeshua say? Yeshua said, Jesus, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And that was actually the launching point for the Seed, the series, is that scripture right there, because I've always been fascinated by the flood and Noah's Ark and, and all that stuff and, and questioned evolution. In fifth grade, I asked the teacher, if we came from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys? And no teacher all through grade school could answer that to my satisfaction. 
And somewhere between junior, my, my, when I uh, graduated from eighth grade and the summer vacation before freshman year in high school, it used to always be taught the theory of evolution, right? I came back from summer vacation freshman year in high school and they dropped the word theory. I said, wow, they proved a lot over summer vacation. <laughs> and it became a mission, a personal vendetta, if you will, that I had to st take a stand in class because I spent pretty much my entire life questioning evolution and therefore studying creation that I, my teachers hated me because the kids in class started listening more to me than they were listening to the teacher. Now, to pass the grades, of course, I answered what the textbook said. How old is the Earth? Well, according to the textbook, 4.6 billion years, despite the fact. <laughs> so I passed. <laughs> but I caused a lot of trouble in the process. And, and as, um, who was the speaker this morning? Uh, Gary Stearman said, I think we should do that. Right? We should. We are responsible for dispensing truth. And so when I looked at that statement there, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man, we all agree we feel like we're pretty close to the coming of the Son of Man, I started thinking, well, what's going on in the days of Noah? I mean, I studied the flood and everything, but let's go a little deeper, deeper because when you say the days of Noah, most people think Noah, ark. Noah lived 950 years, 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood. A whole lot of weird and wacky stuff going on in that time period. So we're going to look at some of that today. In the days of Noah, we see an increased fallen angel activity. There's an increase in fallen angel activity, which produced a, a hybrid called the Nephilim. Angels mating with women produced Nephilim offspring, angel-human hybrids. The angel-human hybrids and Nephilim started teaching men the art of mixing one species with another. Today, we call it transhumanism, mixings of species. They also, as we learned this morning, talked about the exchange of technology. There was advanced technology exchange, which I also submit that there, we were already pretty advanced just as human beings, I believe. I believe we're at the tail end of entropy, and we've got supposedly 6 to 10% of our brain. I was talking with an educator, a teacher just in the hallway. He says that's probably more like 3%, judging by what he's saying. <laughs> I mean, we think we're so smart we came from monkeys, right? So... <laughs> um, but if we were created in the image of God with perfect 100% use of our brain, I think just man alone was pretty advanced, never mind adding to that angel technology and, and wisdom. Uh, at that time period, there was a, a, an immense rebellion and hostility towards God. What does the scripture say? That the, the imaginations of man's heart was evil continually, right? Which caused a corruption of God's previously stated good creation. Good, very good, right? Then God looks down and sees the everything's totally corrupted. Interdimensional portals, that's not something you hear in church too often, is it? <laughs> but I appreciate what was said this morning, that heaven is really only about that far away, probably. It's closer than we think. Listening to Chuck Misser last night talking about different dimensions, we just lost the ability to perceive, but they're still there. Right? So the Tower of Babel was something more, I submit. The, obviously, the worship of other gods other than Yahweh. Men thinking of themselves as gods. All right, I'm a visual person, so I like to put things in pictorial format, and I started working on a timeline chart of world history. <laughs> um, it, with the scripture, it says a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So I made columns for day one, thousand years, day two, you know, the next thousand years, and divided it up by biblical jubilees every 50 years. That's what the gray columns are, or every 50 years increments. 
And as you can see, there's a whole lot of wild stuff there uh, depicted. But I want to talk about real quick the dinosaurs. And I appreciate it again what was said this morning about uh, that Lucifer was sort of the watcher of the, reptil the reptiles, right? So the question naturally comes up anytime you're talking about uh, the flood and creation, all that. Who created the dinosaurs? My personal belief is that God created at least this variety of dinosaurs. And he seems to be pretty proud of it. If you look at the text in, in Job, and, you know, God bless the translators, you know, thanks, thanks for changing the word of God, but uh, they like to try to help us out sometimes. It, it says behemoth, and he goes and gives the description of behemoth. If you read the description that's given in Job, I think it perfectly describes a, a sauropod type of dinosaur. But our translators will translate it to uh, hippo. You ever see the tail of a hippo? <laughs> what does Job say? His tail moves like a cedar tree. His tail is like a cedar. Uh, does that look like a cedar tree? <laughs> Come on. Thank you. Stop messing with the <laughs> scriptures. Um, I believe that God is, is very proud of this. That this is one of he's like, look at that. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Right? Now, if you look at the animal kingdom, there are exceptions, but for the most part, they walk on all fours. You got birds, you got kangaroos, I get it. But for the most part, they walk on all fours. And I believe that the, the vegetarian, all four, you know, four-legged dinosaurs were created by God, the nice, peaceful vegetarian ones. And I believe the evidence is that they, they survived the flood, <laughs> which means they made it on the ark. Now, obviously, Noah's smart enough not to bring a 145-foot apatosaurus on the ark, so he probably brought a baby. But I believe they made it on the ark. And the, and the reason I believe that is because an awful lot of evidence uh, in cave drawings and stuff. You got a little guy right here. You got a long neck dinosaur right there. That's from the, the American Indians. Uh, you, you got, um, what do you call it, a cylinder seal right here. You got, this is a temple on a temple in Cambodia. Okay, so th I believe that these survived the flood and thus we see evidence of it within the recent memory of man coexisting with man. You don't see, on the other hand, this variety. So who created that? Well, I believe the scriptures tell us who created that variety of dinosaur. Genesis chapter 6. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Everything had been corrupted. When you look at that, that's nothing but a carnage maker, a destroyer, a bringer of death. What's the devil do? Comes to kill, steal, and destroy it's that guy right I think the devil tampered with existing DNA existing lizards and produced this the other text uh, I'll use the phrase extra biblical text uh, and, and I use that and uh, people have talked about the book of Enoch and other books I don't want to get into a big debate about that but the fact that Jesus quotes from it Peter quotes from it Jude quotes from it he cut and paste and put paragraphs into his is people debate whether or not it's scripture. I think if it's good enough for them to quote it, <laughs> it's good enough to maybe look at it, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think the same applies for some of the other books too. Now, my take, because I grew up fundamental Baptist, you know, King James only environment, you know, that that anything that I read outside of the Bible, I will always weigh it against the Bible. In other words, if it if it supports it, elaborates it, great, useful information. Any way contradicts it, throw it out. That's pretty much my take on it. Looking at some of the quote extra biblical texts, we see that in the book of Enoch, the Nephilim began to sin against birds, beasts, reptiles, and fish. 
the book of Joshua says that one of the things that they taught was the art, the mixture, the mixing of species. They taught the, the art of the mixture of species. Uh, and the book of Jubilee says everything that walked on earth were all corrupted in their ways and in their orders, and they began to devour each other. I think it fits this description pretty well. So that's my take on that. What about uh, these guys here? Hmm. I was in Cyprus. One of the last trips I did with the ministry, I had a conference. I had the videotape in Cyprus. All the missionaries came there. And as part of that trip, I got to go to Greece. And it was the second time I'd been to Greece. But this time I had a lot more free time. So I walked around Athens. You, you can't look anywhere without seeing a centaur, a minotaur, the toppled remains of a god or a temple in every direction. It's everywhere. And I started to think to myself, I'm a Star Wars fan, and I'm thinking, you know, nobody's going to remember Yoda 4,000 years from now. If all this is is mythology, right? George Lucas trying to create a new mythology. You know, if all this is is the imagination of a blind poet named Homer, it doesn't make sense to me that it would still be so strong in the collective consciousness of an entire people group for this long. And I came back home with the, the thought in my head that I think those guys were real. Came home, told my wife about it. We had a nice discussion with the bed. Next morning, she wakes up, checks her email, calls me, come here, come here, come here, you got to see this. She had on her email screen there a BBC news report that scientists had successfully cloned a sheep with a human heart. And the article went on to say, well, if we keep doing this, the obvious, the obvious implication is that the genes will eventually fuse together and we're going to end up with animal-human hybrids. I'm like, thank you, Lord, confirmation. Because we just had the conversation last night. I think those are real. And by the way, depending on your English translation, satyrs show up quite a few times in the Bible. Should make you think. Go on Bible Gateway and punch up satyr as a word search. Half goat, half man. Today, as it was in the days of Noah, right? Now, most of these pictures up here are photoshopped. They're fake. Except for this one right here, this... Uh, mouse rat thing whatever it is with an ear growing out of its back that's actually pretty old that's back from back in the 90s wh when that came out and this mo this is from a, a movie called splice i do not recommend you see it it's a very disturbing movie <laughs> we didn't know what we were getting into when we saw it but it, it talked about the implications of blending species very disturbing film you have to know that people like professor nick bostrom director of the future of humanity institute at oxford Okay, he's the guy in charge of the future of humanity, at least as far as Oxford is concerned. This is scary, guys. All right, this is a chart that he's put together, and he, he shows this little circle down here in the bottom right-hand corner. He says that's the, the sensory abilities of, of, of humans, you know, our, our senses, we can, what we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell and taste, etc. And he drew another circle here. He says this larger oval here is what's accessible to animals. You know, bats have radar and dolphins have sonar and stuff. And so, you know, things that humans don't have. And so he thought, well, if we start blending humans with animals, then we could increase our sensory modalities and we would have more, you know, the ability to do more. And so he says, by transhumans, the blending of species, we could have this bigger circle right here. And he speculates that if we continue the process, we could have this really big one up here when we all become post-human. And just uh, so you can get a sense of the gravity of this situation, I've got a little short video I put together. Listen to Hugo de Garris and, and Nick Bostrom and some of these guys talk about what's going on r in real life right now in laboratories and what they're planning. There's more computing capacity in a grain of sand 
that's been nanoteched. There's more computing capacity in that grain of sand than, than our human being brain's capacity by a factor of, I don't know, billions, right? So imagine uh, a young woman, she's just given birth and then she, she needs to make the decision. Is she, is she going to have her baby modified? Is she going to turn that baby into a, a cyborg or effectively an artifact? So say she, say she decides to do that. So this, you know, hypothetically, this grain of sand in a sense, that's been nanotech, is uh, inserted into the human brain, that baby's brain, and it integrates itself into the brain. So that baby, in effect, is no longer human. Because, I mean, think about it. The capacity of that grain of sand is billions of times what the human brain can do. So for, I don't know, one billionth of its capacity, of its time, is it doing human things. And the other 99.9999999% of the time, it's doing artelecty type things. So that woman, in a sense, has killed her baby. Killed in the sense the baby's no longer human. It's effectively an artelect. It's an artelect in human disguise. When we start modifying our brains with technology, then it does change us from the word go. Even just feeding in one electrode with maybe an extra sense, an ultrasonic sense, which we know is quite possible, then it starts to give you abilities and you believe you can do things outside the normal realms of humanity. So your values, your morals start to change immediately. You become a cyborg. What I'm really interested in is to try to understand the bigger picture for humanity, our place in the world and what might lie in store for our species in the future, particularly the way we might use technologies to enhance ourselves or to um, go beyond what we currently think of as our human nature, whether it might be by radically extending the human lifespan through um, solving the problem of aging or increasing our intellectual capacities, improving our memory, or taking control of our own emotional states. Um, I think that we are right now in a transitional phase um, where before the end of this century we will either have gone extinct or we will have most likely taken the step to become what you might call transhumans or posthumans or just very um, enhanced humans that have reached their full potential. Because uh, progress is so rapid I mean, there's going to be more progress in the next 10 years than there were in the previous, I don't know, 20 or 30, right? So the rate of progress is speeding up. It itself is accelerating. So there's going to be hugely more change, technological change in the 21st century than, than in the 20th, far more. So all these weird things that sound like science fiction to most people today will probably be realities in a time, in, in a fewer number of decades than we had imagined. I can't see any way that it will not happen. Um, it, this is progress. Human beings already, theorists, have done the math. They've got the modelling of how to build baby universes. So if that's possible in theory, with human brains doing the thinking, what could an artelect do? Could it actually build universes? Could it actually manipulate whatever exists to, to create new universes? Is that possible? Now, if it can do that, then by definition, it's a god, right? It's a creator. Can you sort of sense a kind of, almost like a religious awe, almost? We could build gods if we wanted to.
could build gods if we wanted to. They're talking about Moore's Law, you know, the technology advances, you know, doubles, whatever, 18 months or whatever. This is coming sooner than later, guys. It's already in the works. Did you hear the promises of Lucifer there? Greater understanding, longevity, long life, immortality. We could not only be gods, but heck, let's go make gods. What do gods demand? Worship. Allegiance. Kind of frightening. I think that sheds some light on what the master says when he says in Matthew 24, For then shall be great tribulations such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And again in Luke, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations and with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Could he be talking about this scenario? Animal-human hybrids, cyborgs, artilex. When he says artilex, it's short for artificial intelligence. He basically classifies, in the very near future, going to have three classes of creatures, uh, humanoid creatures. There'll be Terrans, you and me, normal human beings. There'll be artilex, which will be artificial intelligence, AI, that look like humans, but they're completely computer. And then there will be the blending of the two, which will be called cyborg. And it all feeds into the whole singularity and all that stuff that everybody's work talking about these days. So <laughs> could Yeshua be talking about this in the very near future? They're already building this stuff. What about this scenario here? Mile-wide spaceships parking over cities. Hmm. Wasn't too long ago that you would have thought that was crazy. But mile-wide ships have been parking over cities <laughs> lately. Back in 2008, not too far from where we live down in Dallas, a mile-wide ship showed up over Stevensville, Texas. You may or may not have heard about it. It happened in 2008. You know, it used to be back in the old days, it was always some Yahoo out in the, you know, Yeah, I saw a UFO took me up in a spaceship. <laughs> That's the way it used to be, right? 70s and 80s. But now mayors and police officers and, you know, intelligent people, <laughs> incredible people, right, are talking about this stuff. And more and more so, mile-wide ship over Stephenville, Texas, just a couple of years ago. Now, War of the Worlds shows up in 1938, right? This radio program. Orson Welles puts together. Now, if you missed the, the beginning of it where they had the disclaimer that this is just a drama and you tuned in like two minutes late, you thought it was a real invasion. And everybody flipped out. News report right there talking about panic in the streets, people going nuts thinking, because the way they describe the aliens, they look kind of like uh, the water towers. So people looked outside, saw their water tower, totally forgot, it's always been there 50 years now, you know, with the big name, you know, Stephenville, Texas, you know, whatever. They all flipped out, thought it was the aliens invading. People went crazy. I think that was a test. I think the elite la launched a PSYOPs. They launched a test just to see what people's reaction would be. 
after that, we had a steady diet of, you know, they talked about it this morning, you know, the, the, was the day the earth stood still. All these sci-fi movies that came out in the 50s, right? Comic books, novels, uh, UFOs everywhere. Now, we pfft, all the time, t turn on TV, V, whatever. Aliens are commonplace now. But they had to work their way up to this point. They clearly showed in the 1930s, nah, we're not ready for it yet. Interesting conversation I had with Randall Price in the, in the elevator a little while ago. I was asking him when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and commonly accepted numbers somewhere around 1946, but he said he believes it could have been as far back as 1938. With, he had no knowledge that I was going to be talking about this. And so I thought, isn't that interesting? Because if you look at the book of Enoch, you open up the first page in the beginning of Enoch, it says, this is not for this generation, but for a future generation who shall live during the time of tribulation. It's the first few verses of the first chapter of Enoch. It says, hey, it's not for our time, but it's for some people going to have to deal with it later. So, according to Randall Price, the Dead Sea Scrolls were showed up sometime shortly after this little radi radio broadcast and before the event that I'm going to talk about tomorrow, what I call the Mount Hermon-Roswell connection. Interesting coincidence. Hmm. And just to show you how serious people are taking it now, the, uh, for those of you who don't know, the United Nations, uh, just not too long ago, uh, September 27, 2010, announced an ambassador to aliens. They thought, you know what, sooner or later we're going to be visited and we need somebody to speak on behalf of the human race. Okay? So the United Nations is appointing ambassadors to aliens. And then the Vatican comes along and says, yeah, when they show up, we'll baptize them. I'm not kidding. That's serious. Yeah, it it's serious. Like yeah. It, it's, it's not tinfoil hat wearing stuff so much anymore. You know? It, it is real. Now, this picture right here, I mean, I could do a whole seminar just on this picture right here. This is a very disturbing painting when you really break it down. But we're all familiar with the, you know, the, the painting of God reaching out to touch the hand of man, right? That's going to be replaced by this. And that, that poster was deliberate, by the way. What does the scripture say, you know, in the, in the Greek, Alpha and Omega, right? Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, in the Hebrew, it's Aleph and Tav. I am the Aleph and Tav. If you pronounce the Aleph and Tav, which shows up all over the Torah, it's pronounced et. Et. Guys, we're being programmed. Okay? Aleph and Tav. You know, you could go back and just look at the scripture. Solomon said, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Reiterated again with that scripture there we read earlier. As it was in the days of Noah, so is it going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Let's look at our chart again. A whole lot of weird stuff going on there, right? 950 years that Noah lived. Now, uh, best I can tell, the, the Nephilim showed up, the, what I call the Genesis 6 experiment. Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God came down to the daughters of men. Right around the end of the ninth jubilee or so is when, when they show up, right around here. If you look from that time, the days of Jared, which was, I think, Noah's great-great-granddaddy or something like that, all the way up to the time of the flood, somewhere around the 33rd jubilee or so, that means the Nephilim were on the earth for about 1,200 years. 1,200 years. Anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 years. Created all sorts of monstrosities in that time. And during that time, of course, we talked about earlier the increased fallen angel activity and the production of Nephilim offspring. 
Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. There's a, there's a theory called euhemerism, uh, based by a guy by the name of Euhemerus around the 4th century B.C., if I remember right. They basically say, the, the theory is that they, you ascribe all of mythology to real-life people. You can look at all the legends and myths and everything of all these guys and that they're based on real-life people. I, I would say that I subscribe at least loosely to that, to that theory. I, I do believe a lot of the men of renown, as Moses wrote here, are indeed uh, real people that people regarded as gods. But I also think the gods were impersonations by Lucifer himself and the fallen angels and demons. And notice I said fallen angels and demons because I believe that the scriptures, and I refer to the book of Enoch when I say that, uh, really lay out the fact that demons are not fallen angels. Fallen angels are fallen angels. Demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim that always look for a host body. Angels don't need bodies. They get around fine. Demons are always looking, hey, uh, uh, put us in the pigs. (laughs) They want to go somewhere, anywhere but the abyss. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Ken Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, he's got a book called Ancient Post-Flood History here, and he puts forth an interesting theory, uh, making note of the longevity of people, how long people lived before the flood. You know, you got Methuselah, 969 years. And, but after the flood, you know, everybody's kind of in the 900 ballpark before the flood, but afterwards you start seeing a steady drop-off of the, the age that people lived to. And he makes note of the fact that no one's sons lived to be about 600 years old, the next generation lived to between four and 500 years of age. When you get to Abraham's generation, his, he and his father, they were in about the 200 years of age ballpark. And then by the time you get to Moses and today, you're stuck between 80 and 120. Well, he says, imagine you're the generation that's born and you, your generation only lives to be about 200. Now, your, your parents are living to, to double that. So when, when you show up, you know your parents have been around for a while and you're laying there on your deathbed, having lived out the length of your life, and you're looking at your parents, they still look fairly young. Look like they can ke- continue for a while. You may, that generation may begin to think that their parents were immortal. And their parents' parents were gods. And I thought, well, that, that kind of makes sense. You know, I can see how that could happen, definitely. And what happens is, you st- and I got a couple of charts. I, I like pictures and charts, so I'm always trying to make a chart out of something. But just looking at the the lineage from Noah and his three sons, and I really focused on him, and you'll see why in a few minutes. Uh, he had an awful lot of very interesting offspring. Um, so that's kind of the biblical thing right here. But I started to break down the dominant uh, uh, family trees of the gods with the Sumerian Babylonians down here, the Egyptians up here, and the Greeks. Most of us are familiar with the Greek pantheon, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the scriptures themselves talk about there were giants in the land in those days and also afterwards, right? So I made a little chart again. I got a little six-foot guy, average guy. I'm about almost six feet tall, so it's about me. Then you got what I call the Goliath class. Goliath was, depending on who you read, between 9 and 12 feet tall. Agabashan, roughly between 15 feet and 18 feet tall. These are two characters mentioned by name in scripture. Then you got the Amorites and the Canaanite giants. And and the Amorites uh, are really interesting because the Bible describes the Amorites very similar to Behemoth. <laughs> when he in Amos uh, 2.9 there, he talks about the Amorites who are as tall as cedar trees. I don't think God is in the habit of just telling tall tales and exaggerating. I think, you know, see, the guy standing right next to a cedar tree, look, they're the same height. 
a cedar tree starts at 35 feet and goes as high as 150 feet, the cedars of Lebanon. So, you know, the Amorites, you know, biblically speaking, if I'm going to take the scriptures literally, are anywhere from 35 feet to, you know, there's a foot for a 150-footer. And in the post-flood scenario, uh, God himself wipes out the Amorites. You'll see that God wipes them out personally. But then afterwards, you see Joshua and Caleb, a couple 80-year-old guys, and then later you see a little shepherd boy taking these guys out. But you also see a steady decrease in size as you go uh, from the flood forward. Something's going on there, and I'll talk more about that in the other teaching, uh, the Mount Hermon-Roswell connection. Now, <coughs> in the post-flood scenario, when they sent the, the first mention of the post-flood giants is when they, the Israelites, after the exodus, you know, in the, the time in the wilderness, they send the spies into the, to the land there. They come back with the report, and it says, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. How much does it take calorie-wise to feed a six-foot person? Let's say a 200-pound six-footer. 2,000 calories? How much do you think it takes to feed an Amorite? <laughs> kind of explains why the grapes are so big, huh? Take two men to carry a cluster of grapes on a pole. The land devours itself and everything living on it. Yeah, you got to keep up with the metabolic rate of a 100-footer. All the people we saw there are of great size. Yep. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Do you see any mention of an angel there? No, it says the giants came from Nephilim. Nephilim produced Nephilim. Talk about that in the next teaching as well. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Yeah, I can see that. There's the scripture I referred to earlier, Amos 2.9. Yet I destroyed the Amorites, who were descendants of Canaan, by the way, before them, though they were as tall as cedars and strong as the oaks. Let's look at the uh, lineage of uh, the sons of Noah. You got, of course, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Not necessarily in that order. I focused on Ham because the Bible focuses on Ham and his four children. Canaan, Mitzrayim, Put, and Cush. What's really interesting when you start looking at those four characters is you start seeing giants like crazy popping up inside <laughs> that lineage especially the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all the ites that Joshua and his boys had to wipe out. Lots of giants in the lineage of Canaan. Mitzrayim is an interesting one. Mitzrayim is Egypt. Mitzrayim had a, a son by the name of Kaftor. Kaftor, it says in Genesis, it says in Amos and Jeremiah as well, was the father of the Philistines. Well, we know the Philistines were giants. At least five of them were, right? It also says that Kaftor settled the island of Crete. Well, Crete is where all of Greek mythology originates. All of Greek mythology comes from Crete. Mitzrayim's son Kaftor settles Crete. Put, I was not able to find any giants that I'm aware of in scripture um, in the lineage of Put. In Cush's lineage, there's a very interesting character that we'll spend pretty much the rest of the talk, talk uh, mentioning who that guy is. But and, and at first I thought that the only giants that I could find were in Ham's lineage. Until I started looking a little deeper into Japheth's. And two guys in particular that the, the last speaker spoke about, somebody asked a question regarding the coming war of Gog and Magog. Well, Magog is a son of Japheth, and Gog is also associated with Japheth. And, and I was kind of surprised to see this, but as I started looking into the whole Gog and Magog thing, 
I found that there's an awful lot of folklore and mythology in, in the United Kingdom surrounding two characters by the name of Gog and Magog, who are two giants. There's a little thing right there, Gog and Magog. In fact, every year they have a parade called the Lord Mayor Parade. And in this parade, they have two giants that they march around named Gog and Magog. So it appears there were giants also in Japheth's lineage, and that could be substantiated too when you start thinking about the Norse mythologies and, and all of that. Okay, so we got giants there. The only lineage that is pure that of necessity that I could see was Shem. Why? Because the Messiah had to come through. That lineage was pure. And that's what's so interesting, too, as you're reading the Old Testament. It's why God's always saying, don't marry with certain people. And, and I don't have time to get into it. It's in my blog series. There's one, if you want to write it down, uh, called Building a Pure Nation. That's some very interesting stuff in the Old Testament regarding uh, the lineage of Messiah and, and how Judah... The line of the tribe of Judah, right? Yeshua comes out of Judah. Judah almost messed up big time. Well, he did, but a very interesting situation kind of saved the day. I'll leave it at that. Um, if you go to Genesis chapter 10, you see the table of nations. These are the children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You'll see that Ham had a lot of children. <laughs> um, well, they, they all kind of did, but they add up to 70. Now, those are just 70 males. Obviously, they probably had uh, females too, but here they, they list 70. And what I find interesting about that is when you turn the page to chapter 11, it says, and the whole earth was of one language, whole earth, all intermingling with each other in the plains of Shinar. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And that's where they hooked up with a guy by the name of Nimrod and they built a city. It takes a little while to build a city. So they were all interbreeding, intermarrying, and you know, hanging out with each other for quite some time. They built a tower. Now, first of all, you'll notice it says they built a city and a tower. They built that in a valley, the plains of Shinar. So clearly they weren't too concerned about height. I don't believe that, that God was freaking out because they built a tall building. God didn't get all upset and nervous when we built the World Trade Centers and the Empire State Building. No, I think there's a little bit to that, the whole reach into heaven thing about heaven being this far away and other dimensions Chuck Missler talked about and Gary Stearman. They were creating an interdimensional portal. And apparently whatever they were trying to do, uh, they could have done. Because if you continue reading, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they imagine to do. So apparently, whatever they're trying to do was at least possible. And if you read the other texts, uh, Nimrod basically divided the people up into three camps, and they all had a little job to do. One camp was going to assault the people of heaven with swords and spears. One group was going to go in and kill God. And the other group, was their job was to set up their gods in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And God rewarded them accordingly. It's a very interesting story about that, too. We'll talk about that in a minute. So God divides the, the languages. And a lot of the ancient Hebrew texts say, and even the Bible itself in Deuteronomy talks about the, the nations were divided according to the children of Israel in one translation, according to the sons of God in another. Basically, the belief is that they were divided into 70 different languages, 70 different people, people groups. There's about 1,500 people. Obviously, not everybody had a different language. They had 70 languages, and they went in groups. But what's really interesting there is it says the Lord came down to see what was going on. And basically, uh, it's like there's a little wrestling match started right there. God's like, okay, yeah, you want to play? All right, fine. I'll tell you what. You take 69 and I'll take one. Odds are in your favor. Give it your best shot. Let's go. 
And that's, I think, what happened. So the devil decided, well, I'm going to pick a champion. He already had one, the guy that started the whole thing in the first place, Nimrod. Scriptures say that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. The mighty one's an interesting phrase. comes from the word Gabor, Gaborim. There's a lot of debate about that word. I, I think you have to take it in context of what's going on, uh, how it's being referred in the scriptures. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a giant. Sometimes it's just a mighty man, like David's mighty men, the same word. I don't believe David's mighty men were Nephilim offspring because they were busy killing Nephilim offspring <laughs> and preserving the Holy Land. So I, I believe you have to take it in context. In this particular case, I believe mighty one in that case is a giant, and we'll see why in a minute. And again, most people know Nimrod because of the Tower of Babel, which was, by the way, built in a valley. So I believe it also looked probably more like that, like a ziggurat, rather than a tall cone tower that you usually see in paintings. There's a couple of researchers that I've become extremely fond of in the last few years. Peter Goodgame wrote a, a book called The Giza Discovery. If you haven't read it, I, I can't say enough about it. Uh, you can go to redmoonrising.com and download it for free. Uh, he does an amazing job of, of breaking down uh, the whole story of Nimrod and, and what followed. Um, and, of course, Tom Horn, uh, who's here, uh, has a couple books that, that uh, elaborate on some of the things and, and, uh, that uh, Peter Goodgame talked about. Two books in particular, the Nephilim Stargate book uh, is amazing, and Apollyon Rising 2012. And as you look through the, uh, this research, you really find that he is the man of myth of the Assyrians, which are the Babylonians, Sumerians, same thing, of the Egyptians and the Greek. He's, everything points back to this guy right here. As you start looking through it and looking a little deeper, you realize that Nimrod is truly the man of many names. Obviously, the scripture refers to him as Nimrod, which I'm, I'm not entirely convinced is a name. It means the rebellious one, one who rebels, although the Jews do name their children with names that have meaning, so it very well could be the Hebrew name, but regardless, as you continue to look throughout ancient writings, you start to realize that Nimrod could have been known in the ancient world as Gilgamesh, Baal, Melkart, Adonis, a couple interesting ones uh, that we're going to talk a little bit more about, Orion, Apollo, and Osiris are names that this guy became known by. Why? Well, it just makes sense. If the entire world is together under one leader, a tyrant, basically, the, the emperor of, the f of an empire, the first empire, uh, and then God confounded their languages, everybody went their separate ways talking about the same guy. But now they're talking about him with a new language. So now he's got new names. And as you continue along, I really believe that mythologies, a lot of mythologies, uh, if not all of them, begin to become embellished and, you know, exaggerated and, you know, dis distorted. And there's not any of them that are really consistent. They all kind of go all over the place. There's some that the scholars commonly accept. But if you keep looking at the Sumerians, you see there's different lineages and stuff like that. But, but anyway, I think that came as a result of storytelling, storytelling, storytelling further down the line. Looking at the descriptions of some of the people that, uh, some of the names that you just saw up there, you see a lot of pictures of these guys. He seems to be obsessed with a lion. <laughs> Keep that in mind because Yeshua, Jesus, is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, There's Gilgamesh right there with a lion. If you look at his height, if that's a, a, a full-size lion, you know, Gilgamesh is a pretty big guy. Orion got a club ready to strike a lion. This is Baal right here. We hear a lot about Baal in the scriptures, don't we? Same pose basically as uh, his buddy Orion there, Ninurta. You see a lot of these depictions of these other names, but they all are described as the mighty hunter, and they got pictures like this. It leads us to believe that we're talking about the same guy. Now, 
the earliest evidence of any civilization points to the 3,000 to 3,500 BC time frame. Pretty much everybody agrees on that. When they look at the ancient records, civilization just kind of pops up, boom, right there, 3,000, 3,500. Uh, according to the books of Enoch and Joshua, that's when the Watchers landed on Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. Interestingly enough, that's also the time frame when the Mayan calendar shows up. Most scholars believe the Mayan calendar showed up at 3114 BC, so let's look at our chart again. That places it right about here, right about the middle of the time frame that the Nephilim ruled the earth. Let's think they might be setting something up back there. Started setting up the, the Great Deception a long time ago. And I'm not going to go through and read all this, but in the 32nd century BC, you see a whole lot of things took place. It's just an explosion of, of things that happened right there. But one of the common things that you see is the megalithic structures showing up all around the world. These, these huge things and you know, ancient aliens and everybody tries to analyze that and nobody can figure out how they did it. They start showing up on the 32nd century BC time frame. Now, uh, the Sumerian religion influenced Mesopotamian mythology as a whole, surviving in the mythologies and religions of the Hurarians, the Akkadians, Babylonians, Assyrians, and other culture groups. And that has led some people to question, well, did Moses just copy the Sumerian texts? Anybody hear that? The, the, the Torah was just a ripoff of the Code of Hammurabi, you know, Ten Commandments. It ripped off the Code of Hammurabi, and the creation stories are just borrowed or stolen from the Epic of Gilgamesh, etc. I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe that those ancient texts probably were written, you know, well in advance. But I think it was Nimrod's uh, view <laughs> of the story, his, his take on events. And as the centuries progressed and things got more and more distorted, I think God said, okay, enough. I'm going to set the record straight. Hey, Moses, let me tell you what happened. Let's go hang out on the mountain for about 40 days. And I believe God set the record straight. And, and, I, and the Torah stands, stands head and shoulders, I think, above all scripture. I think all scripture is divinely inspired, but the Torah is amazing. Because while other scriptures are divinely inspired, you know, inspired by God, written by man, Torah was dictated. God talked with Moses face to face as one talks with a friend. That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, so I do not believe that Moses copied the Sumerian text. I think it just set the record straight. Now, we are familiar with the phrase that the uh, Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots, we call that false religions. Uh, there's a quote here from the Recognitions of Clement. It says, Fallen angels taught men the use of magical incantations that would force demons to obey man. This became ingrained into the Egyptians, Persians, Babylonians. Nimrod, named Ninus by the Greeks, was handed the knowledge and it caused men to go away from the worship of God and go into diverse and erratic superstitions and they began to be governed by the signs and the stars and motions of the planets. This is a common chart that you might see on the, the family tree of the Sumerian gods. It's pretty complicated. Uh, so I decided to simplify it a bit, mainly because, especially in the upper, what I call the upper tier or the source tier of gods, it's all ethereal. It's like, you know, moisture and, you know, air, you know, got with earth and stuff like that. You don't start seeing actual, like, personalities showing up until you get a little bit further down. In particular, in the Sumerian mythology, in what I call the middle tier, you got two characters by the name of Enlil and Enki. Enlil and Enki. As you read through that mythology, you very quickly identify Enlil as a, a very close parallel to Yahweh, and Enki is a, a perfect parallel for Lucifer. In their story, yeah, they worked together in creation and all that, but it was it, Enlil, according to their mythology, basically wanted men to be slaves, to, to just serve God, you know? And Enki thought, no, I think we, they, they deserve to have wisdom and knowledge. And so it was Enki that showed up for the benefit of man in the garden 
to give them of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And then Enlil got upset and kicked them out of the garden. So it was Enki that came alongside and clothed them because he felt bad for them. And then as people began to multiply, according to the myth, Enlil couldn't stand the noise anymore. So he said, I'm just going to wipe everybody out with a big flood. So Enki showed up and, and warned Noah to build the ark because big bad, big, bad Enlil is going to destroy everything. So it was Enki that, that told Noah to build the ark. And so you see, see how it's reversed? See how it's twisted? See how the serpent is trying to flip it? And oh, by the way, <laughs> there's an awful lot of people talking about the Anunnaki these days. Planet X, Nibiru, supposedly the home of the Anunnaki. Th that all comes back, to, goes back to this. Those who from heaven came, right? He's got giants here working on little people with some kind of technology, some kind of device there, right? And, and you know, some of the speakers have talked about panspermia and the idea that ancient aliens seeded this planet. Well, th they're real big on this, that the Anunnaki were the ones that, that, that created a genetic experiment, messed around with some kind of monkey primate type uh, creature on Earth, mixed their DNA with the primates to create what we call Homo sapien today. That, that's, that's actually a pretty common theory right now going around, believe it or not. And TV shows like the Ancient Alien series that I just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, talking about all this stuff, they've had at least two seasons I'm aware of. I, I don't know if they're in their third season or not. Um, but if you watch it, that's all they're talking about. <laughs> How ancient aliens created life on this earth. They point to the Nazca lines and to, you know, Pumapunku and all these different megalithic sites. See, aliens did it. We can even go back to pop culture and a show that I used to love growing up, Battlestar Galactica. Remember the guy in the beginning? There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians or the Toltecs or the Mayans, right? Remember that? We've been brainwashed, I'm telling you. Now, if you look, start looking, I, there's some really interesting things in parallels and stuff between the Sumerian and the Egyptian mythologies. And, and w my belief is that it started in Babylon, Samaria, and it was perfected in Egypt. If you look at, this is an Anunnaki guy here, you know, human body, bird head. He's got an interesting thing. You see a lot of, in the Sumerian um, iconography and carvings and whatnot, you see they're holding this thing right here and they got this pose where they're holding that. This is just my opinion, just my belief. I'm, I'm not certain about this, but I, I'm coming to believe that this thing right here is what is known as a keist or an orca, a container we might consider like genie in a bottle. A container for souls is what it was known to be where the scripture says, I'm against your magic bands that you use to snare the souls of men. That's in the Bible. I believe it's talking about this right here. I believe that's a soul snatcher type of thing. And I think this could be the pineal gland of a giant of a Nephilim. That would take too long to explain why, but that's just kind of my theory on that. Um, over here in the Egyptian mythology, you got a very similar looking guy. You know, human body, bird head, Horus. Very similar characters. There's a crossover. How did that happen? Well, we got to go back to our buddy Nimrod here, right? If we think of a kingdom as, as a domain run by a king, an empire is a whole bunch of kingdoms run by an emperor. That's what you have going on here, is Nimrod was the king of the world at the time, but when the nation sp spread out, everybody started choosing kings for themselves, so they had little kingdoms everywhere, but he was still the emperor of the empire of kingdoms. And he would make his little rounds and go around to his various kingdoms that he was in charge of and see how things are going. A very interesting story regarding the first pharaoh, a guy by the name of Rikion, or Rikion, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but he came into the land of Egypt, was looking for employment, couldn't find work. So he was an entrepreneur, kind of a scoundrel, and 
he realized that he could extract what became known as a death tax. You want to bury your dead? Fine, you got to pay me first before you can bury your dead. So he created a death tax, made a lot of money. So Osiris comes to town, and the people are all in an uproar about this guy, Rikon, and, and so they're complaining to Osiris about him. And so uh, Osiris said, well, I'm going to go check this out. And, of course, uh, Rikon knew that Osiris was coming, so he had a, accumulated a, men, a tremendous amount of wealth, so he bestowed it on the emperor. Well, that made the emperor feel pretty good. How did you get so wealthy? Well, he tells him. And he, he, Osiris, Nimrod, became so impressed with that that he changed his name from Rikon to Pharaoh. So the first Pharaoh became Pharaoh as a result of a death tax. That should give you an indication of how Pharaohs and, you know, what their kind of personalities were like, let's say, in the future. Very interesting. This is a, a symbol associated with Osiris. It's the Ankh. Ankh it represents resurrection. The all-seeing eye we're all familiar with. It's on the back of our dollar bill. Here's a common uh, image you might see of a bust of Nimrod there. The next image I'm going to pop up is a little bit graphic, so I'll just say that as a little bit of a warning, but I believe it's part of the deception. This is from our government, okay? I think you're probably beginning to realize as you listen to some of the speakers here, you know, uh, Mr. Griffin talking about the Federal Reserve and things like that last night. A lot of this government in this country is based on the occult, and that's fairly new information for me because I, you know, I'm third generation army, grew up, you know, I'm as patriotic as they come, trust me. You know, dad was in Vietnam, grandfather's World War II, I was in during Desert Storm. Grew up in a Christian church that taught us that our, four our founding fathers were all Christians. <laughs> no, they weren't. Just recently, we had a news report, Osama bin Laden's been killed, woohoo! One of the first images that was circulated around the internet was very quickly exposed as a fraud is this one here. That's Osama. That's the guy, whatever, they got the original picture and they blended it in Photoshop. Looks awfully familiar, doesn't it? Let's take it a step farther. Supposedly, SEAL Team 6, on the 66th anniversary of Hitler's death, on May 1st, the founding of the Illuminati, at 3.30 in the afternoon, shot Osama bin Laden through the left eye and then dumped him in the ocean. I'm like, yeah, I'm stupid. Come on. <laughs> now, I only say that because I, I know this stuff. I've been studying this stuff and the occult and all these things and the Freemasonry and all that stuff. It's just loaded with imagery. Now, the average person doesn't know that stuff, so I don't mean to insult anybody. You know, but I'm like, come on. How much more plain can you be? They're serving their master, and I think this is code language that they like to use. They like to talk in code language all the time. Now, going back to uh, the mythologies, Nimrod shows up in the Sumerian pantheon as Marduk, Ninurta, and Gilgamesh. Why three different names? Well, I think there are different groups of people come together, and as the story gets embellished, they all pick a name or whatever, and they, they associate with them. I think it, that's sometimes it gets convoluted like that, but if you research those three guys, you can see a lot of parallels that would lead you to believe that each one of those are another, is another name for Nimrod. In the Egyptian pantheon, of course, he ends up as Osiris. Now, notice in both cases, they end up in what I call the demigod final tier. Half god, half man. Okay? Now, in the more familiar mythology... I believe he shows up in, as Apollo. Now, what's interesting about the, well, a couple things, actually. Zeus is a very interesting character. Um, I believe that Zeus originally was a human being. Uh, there's a, let's see if I just read something real quick right here. This guy's done, the, the, the uh, Dr. Ken Johnson that I talked about earlier, ancient uh, post-flood history. 
He talks about Saturn, uh, Kronos to the Greeks, the father of Jupiter or Zeus. Saturn later died and was buried on the island of Sicily. His tomb was still being shown in the third century AD, according to church father Cyprian. So you could go to Sicily and see the tomb of Saturn. Okay? Read a little bit further in, in the research. Jupiter's tomb, or Zeus, is located in Crete on the north side of the city of Gnosis. Or Gnosis. I'm not sure how you say it, but anyway. There's proof you could go to right now and see the tomb of Saturn and see the tomb of, of, of Zeus. So I believe these two were real live individuals. But I think what happened was, just like at the time of the Tower of Babel, the devil says, I can work with this guy. I think Zeus probably was a great man of renown that probably did a lot of pretty amazing things. And after he died, I think the devil just kind of took on the familiar spirit thing and appeared as Zeus. Because you see all through, especially the New Testament, a lot of descriptions of Lucifer and Satan very much fit the same description of the god of the sky that was Zeus. Okay, So I believe it, that, he, that the devil took on the personality of Zeus as well. Something interesting about the Tower of Babel story that I mentioned earlier is you remember that one group decided to assault heaven with spears and swords and, and one was going to kill God and was going to set up the false gods. Well, God award rewarded each group accordingly. The group that wanted to uh, assault heaven with swords and spears, God made them turn on each other and they actually killed each other off. The group that wanted to set up their own gods in heaven says something very interesting in the book of Joshua. It said they turned them into beings like apes and elephants. Could that be where two of the most prominent, or more prominent, I should say, uh, Hindu gods, uh, Hunaman and Ganesha? Human body, uh, ape head. Human body, elephant head. Just putting it out there. Could be. And the other group that wanted to kill God, uh, those are the ones that God confounded the languages, according to the text. Now, you shall be like gods. Well, we got monkey god and elephant god there, but let's, <laughs> let's look a little deeper here. The pharaohs thought they were gods. The Caesars thought they were gods. Kings thought they were gods all through ancient cultures. What about presidents? <laughs> hmm. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. You may have heard some of the other speakers here talk a little bit about this, but if you walk in, to go to Washington, D.C. and walk into the womb of Isis, because that's what it is, the, the Capitol Dome, right across from the phallic symbol of Osiris, right across the way. Osiris is missing peace. Walk into the womb of Isis and look up in our Christian-founded country, right? And you see the apotheosis of George Washington, surrounded by 72 upside-down stars that we call, what? Pentagrams, right? Binding utilities thro throughout the occult. So we've got George depicted up there, supposedly in heaven, Right, he's sitting there in a throne, you know, there in heaven. You might think that if this really was a Christian nation and that whole thing, that you might see, you know, maybe Jesus up there, you see Moses or see some of the angels or something. Right? Christian nation? No, that's not what you see. You see Neptune up there. You you see Vulcan. You see Mercury. And and our founding fathers taking notes from the messenger of the gods in our Christian country. All right, you may or may not have seen this picture before. This had to be moved indoors because people started complaining about it, but there was a statue that had been commissioned about George Washington as a god. Which god? Zeus. 
that's a, that's a representation of the Temple of Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, made of gold and ivory. George Zeus. Uh, and Baphomet, too, by the way. Same pose as the cult symbol for Baphomet. And not to be outdone, <laughs> that looks awful lot like something you would see in Greece, doesn't it? In Athens, little people, big gods sitting in a chair. And after he died, a whole bunch of postcards and uh, commissioned paintings and stuff coming, started coming out for the apotheosis of Abraham Lincoln with Lady Liberty there with the hat of Mithra. Hmm. Christian nation. And just in case you're questioning, right above his head, what does that say? In this temple, what are temples for? Worship. Gods. Washington, D.C. Well, <laughs> remember what Solomon said? What has been done, you know, will be again. What about this guy? Isn't it amazing how so many photo ops of this guy show up with a halo around his head? He seems to always be positioned such that whatever is behind him forms the, uh, you know, the, the media, like we heard in some of the other sessions, is actively promoting this guy as like a Messiah-type figure. You see it all the time. Well, what's interesting is he was making his rounds and campaigning, and he was in Germany. He was really obsessed with the altar of Zeus, which, oh, by the way, in Revelation chapter 2 is referred to in Pergamum as the seat of Satan. Hitler loved it too. This is in the Berlin Museum. He loved it so much that he made a replica of it for his acceptance speech in Denver, Colorado, on top of a pyramid as the cap. His acceptance speech in Denver, Colorado. Do some research on the Denver International Airport if you really want to go down a rabbit trail. Okay. Acceptance speech in front of the altar of Satan, the altar of Zeus, temple, right? 2008, 2009 was a very interesting time period in this country. This guy right here, as Obama's making his rounds, this guy was making his rounds as well, Anubis. He showed up in America in October 2008, just before Obama was placed, I mean, selected, I mean, uh, voted <laughs> into office. <laughs> Anubis hung around, going around the country, getting photo ops in front of the equally pagan Statue of Liberty. Yeah, this was in March of 2010. And then he camped out, Anubis camped out, in Denver International Airport from June tw uh, 29th, 2010 to January 9th, 2011, this year. Interesting thing about Anubis. He was the god of the underworld until Osiris showed up, usurped his authority, became the new god of the underworld. But he was still a handy guy to keep around because he was in charge of the mummification. To make sure mummification. Mummification was all about preserving the dead for resurrection, guys. And when, when you went down to Hades, he was the guy that quizzed you to decide which direction you go. Okay? Anubis, traveling around the country with our buddy Obama. Same year, Obama goes to Egypt, and in Cairo, all the vendors there were creating metal plaques like this one right here to sell. They were selling these metal plaques that said, Obama, the new Tutankhamun of the world. Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun, King Tut. King Tut was the son of Akhenaten, which was a very interesting character uh, <laughs> indeed. But one of the things Akhenaten did was he got rid of all the old gods of Egypt and instituted a monotheistic religion of one god. 
King Tut showed up, said, yeah, forget everything my dad did, I'm going to reinstitute and bring back the worship of the old gods. King Tut brought back the worship of the old gods. King Tut was a pharaoh who thought himself as a god. Obama, the new King Tut of the world? Makes you think, oh, oh <laughs> unless we forget, the man of peace, right? What the, what the heck did the guy do? Nobody knew anything about him a couple years ago. Goes to Norway to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And while he's in Norway doing that, this thing shows up in the sky over Norway. Now, of course, everybody said, oh, it's a failed missile. Does that look like a missile? No. <laughs> First of all, if there are failed intercontinental ballistic missiles going on over cities, <laughs> that's a big problem too, but... Come on, failed missile. That's like, the you know, back in the 50s, everything was a weather balloon. Now everything's a failed missile. <laughs> Come on. Now, I do not believe that Obama is the Antichrist. I don't believe that. Uh, but I do believe he's probably acting more like a John the Baptist-type character, preparing the way. He is definitely preparing the way, in my opinion. So if he's not the Antichrist, who is the Antichrist? Well, there's a bunch of descriptions of the Antichrist we can look at in Scripture. Uh, here's a few things that pulled out here. The one, <laughs> this is an interesting phrase. The Antichrist is known as the one who was and is not and yet shall be. The beginning of Revelation starts off talking about Je Jesus as what? The one who was and is and is to come. Start talking about the Antichrist, the one who was and is not and yet shall be. Hmm. He's empowered by Satan. He recovers from a mortal head wound. He is called the beast. The beast has or had seven heads. He's associated with the desert and secret chambers. We'll talk about that in a minute. The whole world worships him. He sets himself up as king of the new world order. He thinks of himself as a god. He wages war against God. His number is 666, and he is cast alive into the lake of fire. I believe the answer can be found in these four scriptures right here. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of scriptures talking about the end-time tyrant as the Assyrian. Keep that in mind. Revelation chapter 17 talks about the seven heads of the beast. Go ahead and read that there. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Where does the beast come from? The bottomless pit. And he will go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, think about this, guys. Okay? Think about it. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. There's your guardrails. So it's not Obama. It's not the tyrants in Iran. It's, it's got to fit this. So who are the seven heads? Peter Goodgame has a list that, that after I do my own research, uh, I agree with. Uh, he names the seven heads as Nimrod, obviously the first uh, one-world guy, you know, tried to create a one-world system, tried to kill God, thought himself as a god, clearly fits a description of Antichrist. Second one he names as the Pharaoh of Egypt, which is an interesting guy. It shows up and didn't remember Joseph, remember that? A Pharaoh comes and didn't remember Joseph. That's shortly after... Osiris, in their mythology, was killed, or Nimrod. Interesting thing about that is the ancient texts say that it was Esau that killed 
Nimrod. Esau was a mighty hunter, remember? Dad loved, you know, he could make venison. <clears throat> That's my boy. And Jacob was the mama's boy over there in the kitchen, right? If you just read Genesis, it really makes no sense at all. This mighty hunter comes in, sells his birthright for a bowl of beans. Huh? That doesn't make any sense. But look in some of these other, quote, extra-biblical texts, and you find out that, yeah, Nimrod, the mighty hunter, Esau, the mighty hunter. Esau's a young, up-and-coming up guy, becoming popular. So, two alpha dogs going on here. Os Osiris, Nimrod, decides to encroach on Esau's territory. Esau waits in ambush, rushes up to him, cuts his head off, kills a couple other buddies, and steals the garments that, that is believed to be the garments that God clothed Adam and Eve with, with which he ruled the world. So that's where you get things in the Greek mythology, like the Golden Fleece mythology. See some of these crossovers? So after just killing the king of the world, the rest of the guys that were hanging out with Nimrod were trying to find Esau. So Esau rushed home, ditched the clothes, walked in the house, and just give me something to eat lest I die. I don't care about my birthright. I'm a dead man anyway. That's the subtext. Puts a whole lot more spin on that, doesn't it? Looking at the scripture starts to make a whole lot more sense. All right. Uh, after Nimrod was killed, his wife started to make up a whole bunch of stories about him. And that's when the myth of Osiris started to develop. And that's when Pharaoh started to show up afterwards, thinking themselves to be the reincarnation of Osiris. So the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus was the first Pharaoh to think himself a god, the reincarnation of Osiris tried to kill God's people thinking himself a god. I think that fits the description of an antichrist. Third one that he lists, and I agree with, is Sennacherib. Same thing, thought himself a god, wanted to wipe out the Jews. The angel of the Lord comes out, sends him home packing, and his sons kill him. Fourth one, King of Tyre, was mentioned in, I think, this morning's talk. Uh, described as a man at first, and the narrative switches and starts talking about Lucifer. Clearly, this guy had some affiliation with Lucifer, so he fits, I think, the description of an antichrist character. Antiochus Epiphanes, some might question that. I kind of, I agree with it. Um, he, he walked into the temple, created the abomination of desolation there, set up the altar of Zeus and sacrificed a pig. Fits. I think those are the five that have fallen. The one that is described as the one who now is depends on when you think is, is. <laughs> what Clinton would say. That's, what's the definition of is? <laughs> um, I subscribe to the earlier writing of Revelation because there's no mention of the temple dis being destroyed. Uh, I think that would have been a significant thing he might have written about. That's my opinion. If so, if that's true, then the, the one who now is would be Nero. If, if it's a later date, of course, it's Domitian. But if you think about Nero, he was clearly an antichrist kind of dude. I mean, he'd have candlelit dinners to the burning Christians. Not good. So I think he fits the one not is. The one that says it shall come for a short time, I believe arguably has to be Hitler. And you look at what he did, I think he fits that description. So the eighth, who is of the seven, has to be one of these guys, if you're looking at who the Antichrist is. So let's keep going. Revelation chapter 13 says that he has a mortal head wound that is healed. Hmm. It says there, uh, and I saw one of the heads, uh, one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and the whole world marveled after that. So let's just look at the list and see who had a mortal head wound. Well, clearly being decapitated, that's a head wound. What happens to Christians and people in the book of Revelation? Decapitated. Hmm. Okay. So you're looking at that list. Nimrod clearly fits that description. Uh, Nero is said to have stabbed himself in the throat. Mm, 
yeah, maybe, okay, we could go with that. And supposedly Hitler shot himself in the head, although recent forensic evidence seems to dispute that. And many people think he just really escaped to Antarctica, but that's another seminar. <laughs> but those are our three choices of head wounds, right? Which one of those fits the Assyrian mentioned in the Old Testament? You only have one choice left. But in case you're still questioning that, let's look at Revelation chapter 9. It says that uh, the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth, and he, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Interesting. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. So uh, let me just say this. Those who think they are part of the Joel chapter 2 army that are Christians, go back and read Joel chapter 2. There's a lot of people. Sarah Palin's one of them, by the way. Dominionists going around th thinking that they're Joel. I saw a video that showed uh, T.D. Jakes trying to get his whole church jumping up and down like locusts. I'm like, are you kidding? And thousands of people. The great deceptions here, guys. The Joel chapter 2 army is this. The locusts coming out, up out, out of the bottomless pit. Revelation 9, 11, interesting. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Where does the beast come from? Revelation 17, the bottomless pit. Whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek... He has the name Apollyon, which is a derivative spelling of Apollo. Apollo is another name associated with Nimrod, the character of Nimrod. And at first, I couldn't make that connection. Tom Horn wrote a lot about it, and I really couldn't make that connection because when you look at the Hellenistic view of Apollo, he's sort of this feminine guy who's all the god of music and arts and stuff like that. I couldn't associate him with the de Abaddon destroyer kind of thing. Till I looked back at this previous statement there, which says the locust came out, and looking at the uh, some of the attributes of Apollo, he was the god who was the giver and stayer of plagues and pestilence. Bingo. That's what John, see, John wrote in a, in a time where people understood this. Put yourself in that time, first century, right? Son of Zeus, everybody knew that. He was the giver and stayer of plagues and pestilence. What is this pestilence all over the Old Testament? Locusts. There was the connection right there for me on that. All right. Matthew 24 is the home run scripture for me in terms of identifying who the Antichrist is. In the secret chambers <laughs> and in the desert. Matthew 24 verses 23 through 28 says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. In other words, pay attention, guys. I'm telling you this in advance, okay? Think about it. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the secret chambers, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Here's a really odd scripture. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let's explore that a little bit. Well, we talked about a minute ago that the ankh was a symbol of what? Resurrection. What does it look like? What symbol do you most associate with with our Savior? Cross. We think Jesus, think Yeshua, we think cross. Think this guy, think Ankh. By the way, he's the only other God of antiquity besides our God who was known in the ancient world in the Book of the Dead as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet another parallel. In 1999, this very interesting discovery was made. Zahi Hawass is the, one of the most uh, renowned uh, Egyptologists and archaeologists there in Egypt. 
says, in 1999, I have found a shaft going down 29 meters vertically right here between the center uh, pyramid and the Sphinx into the ground exactly halfway between the Chevron Pyramid and the Sphinx. At the bottom, which was filled with water, where does the Antichrist come out of? Well, he also comes out of water too, doesn't he? Hmm, interesting. The whole thing was full of water. We have found a burial chamber with four pillars. In the middle is a large granite sarcophagus, which I expect to be the grave of Osiris, the god. I have been digging in Egypt's sand for more than 30 years, and up to date, this is the most exciting discovery I have made. Here's an artist's rendering of um, what they found. As they went down, they found a little chamber and went down to another air open area here that had like six sarcophagus chambers right there. And then the seventh one went down even deeper. And that's where they went and, and found what they called the tomb of Osiris. Here's another artist's rendering of what they found there. They found, after they pumped out all the water, they found an island, a square island. It was surrounded by water. They had four pillars that I suspect are instructions for something. In the middle is another island with about a 10-foot empty sarcophagus in it. And this is their words, not mine. They described underneath that sarcophagus an area known as the shaft to the bottomless pit. That's what they called it, underneath the empty sarcophagus. Okay. That's in 1999. Secret chambers. 2003, in the desert of Iraq, Gilgamesh's tomb was found. Another name for Nimrod. Gilgamesh. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, it says, Who can compare with him in kingliness? Who can say, like Gilgamesh, I am king? Does that sound familiar? Who is like the beast? Who can make war with the beast? By the way, it says here in the Epic of Gilgamesh that Gilgamesh was said to have been two-thirds God and one-third man. What's two-thirds of a hundred? 66.6%. And if you... Are sat in on Sharon Gilbert's study on uh, <laughs> the carbon molecule. We're all man, right? Carbon-based. Six electrons, six protons, six neutrons. This guy's loaded with sixes. Interesting. Okay. Gilgamesh's tomb was found in April of 2003. When did we go to war? We went to war with Iraq in May. We kicked out all the archaeologists, set up the largest military base and an embassy that's ten times bigger than any other embassy on the planet in Babylon. And the first thing our troops did was raid the Museum of Baghdad. Look it up for yourself. We went to war in Iraq under pretense of finding weapons of mass destruction. We all know that that wasn't the case. But I submit to you that it was. That we didn't find weapons of mass destruction. We found the weapon of mass destruction in the desert of Iraq. And the first thing our troops did was we raided the <laughs> Museum of Baghdad. And then, uh, so that's May, right? Then in June, U.S. authorities, oh, here we go, we're the saviors, right? <laughs> U.S. authorities, they create the problem, create the solution, how convenient. U.S. authorities announced that the world-famous treasures of Nimrud, which is another derivative of Nimrod, were recovered from a secret vault in Iraq's central bank. The artifacts included necklaces and, and plates and gold earrings and finger and toe rings and bowls and flasks. Officials said that of the 170,000 items initially believed missing, just 3,000 remained unaccounted for. Yeah, do you think they're nose rings and toe rings that are missing? No. They've got something. They, <laughs> they got something there. Imagine the startling proposition that the Nephilim, the giants, the mighty men of old, the gods and children of the Watchers could somehow rise up, could somehow be reconstituted inside of a body. 
And, of course, I've discussed with you before my theory that one of the greatest legends in history could be a record of that having actually happened. And I'm referring to Nimrod, who some scholars also identify as Gilgamesh of Sumerian fame, Apollo of Greek fame, Osiris of Egyptian fame. And this Gilgamesh was a giant who a lot of people didn't even believe was anything more than myth until his grave marker was found a few years back. And then, according to some people, the military swooped in and took possession and control of that dig. Hey, Tom, I want to interject something. I talked to a special operations general who was there when Gilgamesh's remains, and in his words, were he was in a state of remarkable preservation, okay? He said they have Gilgamesh's remains. So if they have Gilgamesh and he is Nimrod, they got it. And the whole point was to extract the DNA. When the Iraqi regime fell in April 2003, the Iraqi Museum in Baghdad and museums in other provinces such as Mosul, Basra, and Babel were exposed to theft for two consecutive days. The theft was carried out by local and international networks as well as Iraqi and Arab agents. It is estimated that 170,000 artifacts were stolen, 15,000 of which have no registration records. The most important of these artifacts are the Sumerian cuneiforms, which represents the philosophy of life and death. Many date back to Mesopotamian times more than 4,000 years ago. Artifacts pertaining to the civilizations of the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Chaldeans, and others that go back thousands of years in history, were taken away from the land of the two rivers. In addition, entire book collections from certain historic eras disappeared from the National Library, thus negatively affecting Iraq's wealth of civilization and culture. One must also mention that some artifacts were stolen and sent to Israel via the American forces. American troops stood by as Iraq's heritage was plundered. One memorable moment that week was when Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld dismissed the looting in Baghdad as unimportant. Freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. Many of the looters knew which objects they were looking for and where to find them. In other words, they were insiders. Investigations revealed that the main metal gate of the storage rooms was opened. It was not opened by force, which means a person who knew where the key was participated in the theft. What sent me on the path that led me to this spot right here was my wife and I, we, we're late-nighters, we go out, uh, we, we stay up late, we work late, and a lot of times we go out for a walk at night. And we went out for a walk at 2.22 in the morning uh, on the winter solstice, December 21st, 2010. Looked up in the sky and floating o Orion, who's Orion? Nimrod, the mighty hunter. Floating over the shoulders of Orion like a decapitated head, the moon went turned blood red for 72 minutes. You can look it up for yourself. 72 minutes. 2.22 in the morning, Texas time, Central Standard Time, is 3.22 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. Skull and bones. What is that? A decapitated head on a pile of bones. Very interesting. <laughs> At that moment, in Iraq, they had just announced they, are fully, they had fully formed their government. While this is going on here at night, it's daytime there, they had announced their fully formed government. And the whole planet shook. There are internet seismographic monitors that check the, the, the earthquakes around the world. They all started going crazy that night. 
the earth shook. Iraq announced its new government and a decapitated head <laughs> floated like a blood red moon for 72 minutes over the shoulders of Orion. Today is December 21st, Tuesday, 2010 at 6.13 p.m. Central Standard Time. And we are looking at the live internet seismic server, which is still recording a gigantic earth mint at all stations around the world. Now this began last night at approximately one to two hours before the eclipse. And originally, I thought this may be a signature from the Iran earthquake that happened yesterday, which was a 6.5 on the Richter. However, it continued all night and into today with a crescendo in Japan of a 7.4. And now, as of, and I'll just click on any one of these, I mean, all shaking through the roof, but we'll just click on Norway's, let's say. And as of 2347 Greenwich Mean Time, we still have a gigantic, gigantic disturbance happening. And this is not the Japan disturbance. This is some other anomaly that is showing up all around the world. Um, I have never seen anything like this in the time that I looked at, at this data set. I mean, in Arizona, it's showing just off the chart. The, it, the evidence speaks for itself. And you can see the date timestamp, 1221 to 2010. 1649 Mountain Standard Time, which is 2349 Greenwich Mean Time. So just to prove that this is not showing up and they're either censoring this data or it's some, some other kind of anomaly is the current USGS World Global Readout of Earthquakes. And within the last hour, we had a 5.1 aftershock in Japan, which any geologist would be able to tell you if you want to go back and look at prior data, you can see that a 5.1 does not show up as a huge off-the-chart earthquake all around the world at all the heliographs around the world. I looked up and I, I sent an email to Tom Horn and a few others. I'm like, uh, <laughs> something's going on here. And there's you can write this down, Stellarium, uh, Stellar, S-T-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-M.org, Stellarium.org. There's a free software that you can download that allows you to track the movement of planets and stars, and you can look at current or future or past, go look all over the place. There's an extremely interesting alignment that takes place on September 11th, 2 BC. The alignment of September 11th, 2 BC is virtually identical to the description given in Revelation of the woman who's clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and 12 stars at her head. And three kings line up right there, too. You get the king planet, which is Jupiter, lines up over the king star, which is Regulus, in the king constellation of Leo. King, king, king. Three kings. Perfect description of what Revelation says, the woman clothed with the sun. I believe that's what the Magi saw in 2 BC. If that's true, and I don't know if that's the birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus, or when he was two years old and the Magi showed up, I, I don't know when it is. But, but if it's true and it's somewhere in the ballpark of his birth, then that could mean that our calendars are off by two years. Everybody's talking about December 21st, 2012. I submit that something pretty extraordinary happened to December 21st, 2010, two years off from that date. Now, 
Is it just a coincidence that all of our presidents are related except for Martin Van Buren? Um, we don't elect our presidents. I think you saw that last night. How could, what are the odds that all of our presidents would be related to each other except for Martin Van Buren that could trace their lineage all the way back to the House of Plantagenet? What are the chances of that? What are the chances that George Bush would also be related to John Kerry and Vlad the Impaler, by the way, Abraham Lincoln, Dick Cheney, and even Obama? Yeah, I couldn't believe it either until I started doing the research. I put this slide here. We're in the Patriot Room. And I, I just ask you, don't, don't question my patriotism, okay? I'm going to say some things that are disturbing to me to even say. I put this picture up to the show that I was willing to lay my life down for this country. I love this country, okay? Third generation army. I don't agree with everything this country does or that its leaders who clearly seem steeped in the occult are doing. And it really disturbs me that my brothers and sisters in the service are giving their lives for a lie. And a whole lot of people are shedding their blood, which is nothing more than human sacrifice to bail. And if you look at the breakdown of the English language and who was involved with formalizing the English language, you start finding characters like Francis Bacon, who was Shakespeare, by the way, this, that formalized our language. You start looking at the English language a little bit different, and the words mean things. Soldier, soul dyer. Soul is the name of our son. So are, are, are we laying down our lives for the sun god? It sounds ridiculous until you start looking through this stuff, and our, our brothers and sisters are dying and being maimed for a lie. That gets me upset. It makes me very upset. But I can't deny the facts. It seems to me that the sole purpose of this country is to bring about the resurrection of Osiris Gilgamesh Orion Nimrod. So much so that there is a statue in Washington, D.C. called the Awakening of a giant god, bearded god, coming up out of the earth. Note the chemtrails in the background. <laughs> Chris Pinto has done some amazing videos. I highly recommend you check them out. The New Atlantis, Riddles in Stone, Eye of the Phoenix in particular. The Ankh represents resurrection. That passage that I pointed out before, for where the carcass is, there the eagles shall gather. Some of the modern translators tried to help us out again. You know, same guys that turned the behemoth into a hippo. Turned the eagles into vultures, because everybody knows eagles don't go after dead things, they go after live things, right? Well, let's leave it alone. Scripture says, for where the carcass is, there the eagles shall be gathered together. Having served in the military, worn many dress uniforms, our uniforms are covered with eagles from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Eagles on our buttons, eagles on our patches, eagles on our hats, eagles everywhere. What's the dominant s symbol of world empires? Roman Empire, eagle. You know, Nazis, eagle. America, eagle. I think Jesus looked forward in time into the future and saw eagles gathered around a body that was pulled out of the desert, brought into the secret chamber, and he said, hey, pay attention, I'm telling you this in advance. For where the carcass is, there the eagles shall be gathered together. When you add it all up, <laughs> you've got the tomb of Osiris found, Tomb of Gilgamesh found, Museum of Baghdad raided, Sarcophagus of Osiris empty. They said it was empty. Military secures the Giza Plateau. They built a big wall around the pyramid so you can't get in there anymore. NASA starts going up and taking a bunch of pictures. They've already had pictures of the pyramids for, for decades. They start taking more pictures, find 17 more pyramids underneath the Giza Plateau. And strange hieroglyphic markings recently found by the, the Jedi robot. Interesting.
I'm just throwing this stuff out there. My personal belief is that we're looking at the return, the, the ultimate Frankenstein story. That's where it came from anyway. Kumain, Sybil, and all that, Apollo. And I believe maybe these guys may be instrumental in helping resurrect him. We come in peace always, as Anna would say. I've written extensively about this. My wife is going to be outside. we got some stuff here uh, that's available. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book called the uh, Babylon Rising and the First Shall Be the Last. My wife and I treat this as a ministry. As Gary Stearman said, it's our job to, to expose deception, and that's what we're trying to do. This is all my wife and I do. If you believe in what we're trying to do here, all we ask is please pray for us. Support us if you can. If we were in the desert trying to tell people about Jesus, would you give us a bottle of water a day? Well, that's basically what we're asking for, a dollar a day to get behind us, help us. I'm going to show one quick video here um, from the History Channel, believe it or not, that was talking about Zeus. I love the way this ends. This is the story of Zeus, Greek mythology's supreme commander. To us, it's a myth, but to the ancients, it was reality. Some Greeks believed Zeus was the one true God, and that nature's worst catastrophes were a sign of his wrath. This is the myth of Zeus. In the myth, Zeus has held onto power in the face of strong opposition. But there is one more challenger he didn't count on. Jesus Christ. In the first century AD, his message would take the world by storm and dethrone Greece's dominant god. In antiquity, there was no more powerful force than Zeus, except for one. That's awesome. That was from a series on the History Channel called Clash of the Gods. I just took sound bites off of it and added video uh, pictures to it. Uh, but I, I was amazed about that because if you think about it, Zeus ruled supreme for 3,000 years until a seemingly insignificant carpenter from Nazareth showed up. Probably about five foot eleven or so. Totally toppled Zeus's regime. When you study this stuff, it's tempting to get really scared and be afraid. I'm not. You don't need to be because that's who we serve. Greater is He that who is in us than than all this stuff that's in the world that's coming after us. You've noticed that I've used the word Yeshua a few times. I do believe there's power in the name of Jesus. I was saved in the name of Jesus. I've led a lot of people to Christ uh, in my missionary journeys in the name of Jesus. But I, I have really fallen in love with his given name, Yeshua. Because as I started taking Hebrew classes recently, learned that there's a Hebrew idiom that says every Hebrew letter has multiple meanings. Therefore, every word has 70 meanings. <laughs> so if every letter has seven meanings, every, every word has 70. Why? Because the word not only has the meaning of the word itself, but it also has the combined meaning of the letters that comprise the word. What's amazing about the word Yeshua, the word Yeshua means salvation, but the letters, if you take the letters, Yod, Shin, Vav, Ein, the, it translates to the hand that destroys the establishment of the eye. That's what Yeshua means. So I'm like totally jazzed about that. <laughs> That's just awesome. Further proof that we have nothing to be afraid of. The TV series is designed to show all this stuff. Like I said, I think it makes for fantastic science fiction. I just happen to think it's true. You can pray for us. You can help us. If you know anybody that might be able to support us, help us going, we have to do it independent. 
we go to ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, Sci-Fi, they will control our content, censor us, and cancel us prematurely and own the rights. We have to do it independent. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. I've been called. I'm like, okay, Lord, bring on the equipping. <laughs> but I believe he wants us to be a joint effort. I'm not doing this alone. I've got other people, and I invite you to join us. Thank you. All right, that's it, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. That was the first uh, of many lectures that would soon follow. Tomorrow, I will probably, around the same time tomorrow night, uh, do the uh, Mount Hermon-Roswell connection video. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, uh, I'll probably release uh, a View from the Bunker interview that Derek did with me and a few others uh, the same night that uh, uh, the day that I did this recording, the mythology talk, that night we did a, a radio interview. So uh, stay tuned for that, and uh, we'll see you back.